Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, one of the things that most interested me about your background was uh, where you began. And uh, I, I was reading that you actually worked initially at sort of the height of the dot-com boom at the San Jose Mercury News. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was intriguing because I actually had a very similar experience in the, you know, around that time I was actually working for the Murdochs uh, for their newspaper group in Australia. And people sometimes don't realize it, but working at a newspaper was a wonderful place to actually watch the beginnings of the, of the first internet disruption. Yes. And we knew it was happening. We absolutely had eyes <laughs> on it. exactly knew what was happening. Well, because, I mean, so many of the core newspaper businesses, not just the way we read news, but the classified businesses in particular, um, were being directly impacted by these new type of disruptors like eBay and, and other sort of in, in automotive, other people that are basically eating the lunch of listings. I mean, a, a good friend of mine still to this day is Jeff Taylor, who started Monster.com. Right. And he keeps saying, he, but every time he sees me, he goes, the biggest mistake was not coming to work for me. But you know, so- do, do you ever think back, like with the benefit of hindsight, if you knew exactly how things would play out, it still would have been difficult to persuade the leaders of these big organizations of changing their timeline. Why do you think that is? Because it, it's often bothered me that even if I knew play by play what would happen for the next 20 years, I, I would have struggled to really change attitudes. The thing is, is that people like Knight Ritter, um, News Corp, they, they, they all went for it. They all went digital. They, they completely saw the opportunity, but they wouldn't commit 100% to it. Right. Right. So they were kind of hedging their bets, hoping that it wouldn't be so bad and that this would be their backup and insurance plan. Um, even the, the company I ended up with, community newspaper company, um, did it everything the right way. Again, there were the other systemic issues around the print business and being owned by a venture capital firm. Um, but yeah, we were profitable within six months because we charged for our classifieds online and we gave away the print for free. And, but that created a value uh, for the online that people could actually see and, and then therefore could see the benefits of it. And we're, we're really happy to do it. I think this is the thing that people often, uh, you know, who weren't around for that period forget was that it wasn't that it was it wasn't that that people had missed the opportunity. It wasn't that the it wasn't obvious that the internet was going to be big even then. It's just as you say, it was very hard to prioritize relative to the real money that was coming in from doing the exact opposite. Yeah, I remember at Forrester we talked about how uh, we were doing the retail projections of how much of it would move online. It was in some categories like shoes would never move online. Because people want to try on their shoes. Never thinking <laughs> that, you know, somebody like Zappos would actually make it so that, yeah, you can return the shoes. Right. What a thought, well, right? It's I like, mean, you remember back then, Web, Webvan was the biggest joke of all, and, and now it's actually just Amazon. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes these things have to happen in the right time. I'm talking today with the uh, wonderful Charlene Lee, who is actually written six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Open Leadership. Uh, her most recent book is The Disruption Mindset, which I've just finished reading, and it's really definitely worth a read. It's fantastic. Uh, you, you, those of you in the industry would also know she founded Altimeter, which was sold to profit. And it's, uh, it's great to be talking to you today. Thank you for having me. So, you know, let's, let's, let's circle back on this issue of disruption because it's, it's become, like innovation, one of those words that's been incredibly uh, undermined by overuse. 
why, in your view, have we been looking at disruption wrong? And why do we tend to assume that it's just about technology? Well, there's this great book written by Clay Christensen about the, dis- uh, the innovator's dilemma that talks about innovation um, and disruptive innovations and disruptive technologies. And so, and it just happened to come out in 1997, right when the internet was, was coming into play. And so people thought that this was about the internet, it's about technology, and that you needed to find the right technology to drive growth. And, and the reality is so many companies picked up those technologies, started adopting them, and then they realized, oh, this growth part, it's really scary. It's going to challenge and disrupt the way that we see the world. That's too much. We're going to back away from that. Right. And so the thing I realized was that it's not disruption that drives growth. It's growth that is itself disruptive. And organizations and their strategies and leadership and culture are not set up to be disrupted. So the minute it becomes uncomfortable, we back away from that. Growth is really scary. Well, the, the example you gave from, from back in the old days, the internet really struck a chord with me, which was that the mistake big companies made was to create like a innovation division or a digital division. Uh, where they would take all the smartest people out and tell them to go work on this new thing that generated no growth and no money. Right. And, and I think this is because the innovation was hard and scary. So we'll take all these people who want to create growth, we'll stick them over there where they can't cause any trouble right. and not bother the people doing real work. And that's great if you are intent on making sure that new unit is going to come back and disrupt you. But the way most companies do it, they, they shunt them out of the organization so they don't have to deal with them. They send them to Silicon Valley. And that's not truly thinking about and, and creating disruption that's going to fundamentally change the organization and drive growth. So in a way, you have to front load the pain because in order to um, take a hit to the core business, which in a lot of the examples you talk about that we're going to talk about as well, like Adobe, they, they brought forward the suffering, but that allowed them then to collectively as a company together move forward into the opportunity. Right. What Adobe did was they took their core business, two thirds of their business impacted software and said, we're going to put it in the cloud, even though no customers wanted it. Nobody was asking for this. Uh, The employees thought this was a terrible idea because no customers wanted it. And they knew it would hurt their financials for two years as a publicly traded company. Their income was going to go down and tank. Yeah. It's, it's amazing they didn't get hit by like minority shareholder suits. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, was, it was a real concern of theirs. Yeah. And so they had to work really hard. I mean, the CFO basically went to Wall Street and says, we've got a brand new strategy. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to lose money for two years. Isn't this going to be great? But they were able to convince and tell people and sell them on this new vision. So literally when after a year of like, okay, profits and the income tanked, it was because the strategy was working. But because they had a whole year to acclimate the street and investors to what was really going on, uh, they were able to say, yeah, it, it, with a totally straight face, this is fantastic. Our strategy is working. We just lost a ton of money because people were switching over. They love this new product. We just got to stick with it for the next year until the money actually comes in because of the way we recognize revenues. And people, could, people understood it. And literally every time the, the income went down in the quarterly earnings, the stock price went up. You would never see anything like that. This was a perfect example, though, of uh, even though it, it, it required the cloud and it required a level of technological sophistication they didn't have before, it wasn't really about technology. It was a change in the way they made money. 
And, and that was quite similar to the other example you gave of T-Mobile. I mean, at, at the heart of their transformation was a change in the way they made money, uh, a moving to a, a sort of no, no contracts in, in the traditional sense. Yeah, but if you think about it, the, the term of the contracts was just a way of how you have the obligations. People still paid the same amount every month. Right. They just were not necessarily committed to do that for two years. So the business model fundamentally didn't change. It was in some ways kind of a superficial branding and value prop change. That the core business didn't change, but actually everything about the way T-Mobile ran itself changed. They changed the way they sold things and the incentives to be much more focused on customer satisfaction. They changed the way they answer the phones in customer service. They changed the CEO. They changed everything that they did. So it wasn't just a tagline. So you're absolutely right that they changed the way they did business. But it, 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 and it was incredibly uh, disruptive to the industry. Everyone else had to follow them in terms of tearing up those contracts because they were so successful. Is there a kind of a survivor bias with some of these, as you call them, big gulp moves, um, people who bet the business? Because you, know, you, can, you can think of other examples as well where they took a similar level of disruption, but it, it ended in chaos. Is it just good judgment in the end about when exactly the nature of the disruption that, that this really comes down to? You know, it, there's no sure thing. I wish there was like a magic wand I could wave and say, this is the solution. But what I have found across the board is when people are focused much more on the customer need and they get that right. need really super right. They're focused on the customer and not the product. So they, they, in, in that critical moment when they define their point of disruption, it, it's very much led from an insight on not just their current customers, but their future customers. Absolutely. It's about their future customers. And the biggest mistake that existing businesses do, and they have everything going for them, except for the fact that they have beautiful, profitable, current customers. Right. And they get blinded by them. They literally cannot see those future customers because it's so profitable today. Like, why would we do anything else? Why would we go down this difficult path and uh, take on this uncertain world and, and really struggle and fight? But we got the easy road here with our current customers. This is much better. Why, why go do this other crazy the, stuff? This focus on future customers, I, I find really fascinating. It was actually something I looked at in, in, in my recent book where I, I was looking at um, Masayoshi Sun and SoftBank. It's funny how these people go in and out of favor. <laughs> like when, I, when, when I first wrote about it, like SoftBank was on top of the world. And then when my book came out, they were like the WeWork disaster. And of course, now in the post-pandemic world, where anyone's desperate for yield, they're suddenly looking like heroes again. But one of the things I found very interesting was as an organization, they are focused on markets and consumers that don't even exist yet. And they try yes. to work backwards from that. And, and, and there was a lot of similar thinking in your book as well, which is that disruptive organizations start with a vision of who their future customer will be. And they try to be centric around that vision. Mm -hmm. and, and they realize that that future in order to build that future, instead of waiting for it to come, you start building it today. And when you do that, you actually can make that future come forward. Uh, you actually can make that future become a reality if you, you get to have enough scale. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is Facebook. Right. And they, were, they penetrated the entire market for college students and high school students within about a year and a half. I mean, they dominated. They had reached their entire addressable market. Mark Zuckerberg's going like, so what, where, how do we grow? 
<laughs> and he goes, I know. The last thing, I mean, nobody was asking for this, but with, do you think any college students are like, yeah. Let, let's, let's, in, let's invite their parents. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that, that, in, in a sense, that's the moment where, you know, I, I think the, the, the possibility of competitors to Facebook like TikTok and Instagram were born. <laughs> right. But, it, I mean, look at it this way too as well. The college students still use Facebook. They just may not use it as intensely. Hmm. But they traded that off for a much larger audience, the rest of the world. And the, the biggest competitor that they had at that time was MySpace. I mean, Facebook was a challenger. Will they ever be able to catch up to MySpace? MySpace did the conventional business right thing, which is to focus on their core customer that was really focused on music. And these were people who just loved music. Music was the center of the world. So it was very music and entertainment centric. They never served those adjacent users, the people who were on the fringes. And Facebook did everything, constantly changing its algorithm and things to, to bring those people in. So I, I look at, in some ways, this is not about dismissing and, and chunky to the side your current customers, but is with full knowledge that your current customers are not necessarily your future customers. You, you're, you're, you're right about MySpace, Charlene. You know, it, it's funny, there's a whole bunch of nostalgia now, people sharing pictures of Tom and saying, this is what, you know, this is what the CEOs of tech companies used to be like. But, but I remember, you know, MySpace events in San Francisco, you know, in that time. And I think I went to one and they had like Lionel Richie playing. I mean, they were really hardcore into the music scene. Um, and that was their core competency. But, but as, you, as you say, like a, a, a kind of an obsessive focus on the customer only works if you're thinking about different timescales. Right. I think that customers are constantly evolving. Right? And, and if you are foolhardy to actually believe customers are static, and, and especially right now in a time of the pandemic and economic uncertainty and also social justice movements, everything is changing. And so if you're not questioning everything that you held to be true in the past, then you're making a big mistake. And, and I, I'm fine with companies and organizations choosing to stay where they are. Like, this is the right path. The strategy we had before, what worked before is going to work in the future. I'm fine with that strategy. If. And only if they had looked at all the other possibilities and said, you know, those are great, interesting, but they're not the right ones. This path is the right one. If you have looked at everything possible and said, this is the path we want to stay on, then great. I don't doubt you in that. But the vast majority of people who are staying on the same path haven't looked. They haven't even bothered to ask the question, how have things changed? Have they changed? How are my customers' needs changing right now? And you'd be a fool to think that everything has stayed the same. Everything has changed. Especially, especially now. Uh, I mean, your, your book came out last year, the, the focus being how do we disrupt ourselves in our industry. But in 2020, the source of disruption has become external. So how does the pandemic change the way we think about disruption? People talk about acceleration now, but does it also, has it also changed what the future customer is going to be? Absolutely. I mean, you think about every industry, um, everything from hospitality to professional mm -hmm. services to retail to manufacturing, it's all changed. And when needs change, when, sh um, when, um, when, when those uh, things are shifting, those are opportunities because those opportunities come to the people who can shift as quickly as those customers. So if you can dedicate time to figure out how your customers' needs are changing and to be right there to meet those needs, 
that's what's happening. So I, I love the restaurants who are saying, yeah, I don't have indoor dining anymore. I'm changing my menu. I'm getting trucks. I'm going to go to my customers. I'm going to distribute. I mean, these restaurants are pivoting to meet the need of their customers. And along the way, they're going to get even more customers. So yeah, they're giving up the, the fact that we can do indoor dining safely anytime soon versus restaurants. So it's just like, you know, I'm just going to stay closed and wait. I'm going to use my PPP and just wait until things open up and they're still waiting. Yeah. Uh, whereas these other, co- these other restaurants have taken advantage of some flexibility, this, this chaos that's happening to develop new relationships with new customers. And I think that becomes especially relevant where there's other underlying trends that maybe you wouldn't have been able to participate in, like dark kitchens or cloud kitchens, where you're actually essentially opening up a concept that never has a physical presence. And it's right, designed exactly. under a totally different model. That if you had right. just sat this out, you probably would never have had to even think about that. Yeah. I mean, think about everything that's being reconsidered. Why would you go to a doctor's office, sit in, in, a, sit in a waiting room with other people who are sick for whatever amount of time in order to go see a doctor for 15 minutes? All right. What are the circumstances where that would make sense? How, how do we do schooling completely differently? How do we travel now? Yeah. Uh, you know, everything about our lives is being disrupted and changed. And, and I don't, I think of these disruptions as neutral. We can think about them as a negative thing, or we can think about them as a positive opportunity. It's your choice. You choose whether you're going to be a victim or a victor when it comes to disruption. If you look at other examples of externally imposed disruption, I, I'm thinking back to the financial crash of 2008. That led to actually a huge upswing in automation, the use of technologies, especially in finance and brokerage firms. But as a result of that, there were a lot of jobs that disappeared that actually never came back. And, and, and we often don't talk about that or think about that. But a, a big part of disruption is, is often economic rationalization. And you could argue that Adobe's big move was a kind of a, also a kind of predatory tactic in that now something you bought once, you are now paying for continuously forever. So are you optimistic that as we come out of this crisis, that these disruptions will actually lead to better experiences or potentially more consolidation? I think both. Um, let's look at Adobe for an example. Uh, before, if you want to use Photoshop, you had to lay out at least $800. Hmm. Now you can pay $10 a month. My college student daughter uses Adobe, pays that money happily out of her own earnings because it allows her to do the creativity that she wants to do. But she could never have done that before. But the lifetime value um, of what your daughter pays is probably going to be a lot more though, but it's just but not upfront. Yeah, but it's not upfront, but it's also the difference is it's $240 now for two years, which is the typical life cycle when things get upgraded, $240 versus $800. That's a big difference. Mm. So it's, it's, it's opening up um, audiences that you could never have reached before. Now, it, and this is a huge reason why Adobe got a lot of blowback when they did this. It's like, you're just trying to get rents from us versus one-time payment before. You're just trying to get more money. But Adobe also said, well, if you look at the lifetime value, you're actually, if you were upgrading, most people were, you would be paying more. And this is actually less. So it, there's different ways to think about it. And the, the harder part is the economic reality of as technology happens, as productivity gains are, are happening, and we see a shift in employment, what we don't have here in the United States is a social safety net. 
to be able to catch to people so that if you, you are transitioned out of a job, and it's hard to imagine that the education that you get in your 20s, the training you get in your 20s <laughs> is going to last for another you know, <clears throat> 50 years, given our lifetimes now of working. It's inevitable that we're going to have to do career shifts. Hmm. And you know, the smart truck drivers are seeing, I, I was talking to a truck driver, he goes, yeah, I see the writing on the wall. My job is going to be automated within the next five to 10 years. So he goes, I'm getting my hazmat training because that's the last category that's going to be automated. You're going to want a human driver behind that wheel for the hazardous material. At right? least, at so, least so you can have someone to blame then. Right, exactly. Um, and, and so it, it, it may be automated, the giant may be automated, but they still want a human behind that wheel. Yeah. So there's, there's different ways that people are dealing with this. I included one example in my book with Nokia. When they went through incredible restructuring of the entire company, selling off the handsets and going into the internet communications and telecom space, 95% of the people who were there two years after that change had never been at Nokia. Only 5% of the people had a Nokia badge before that. But they were making sure that there were exit routes for people. And people knew with clarity that in the next six months on this day, that would be your last day at Nokia. And they worked until the very last day to make that transition happen, knowing because they had a roadmap, a bridge to the next life. Um, and, and I think that's what we need to do as businesses and as a society to say, we can't just throw people out in the street because their usefulness is no longer there. If we're truly going to disrupt, we need to be able to make sure we're doing disruptive work in a very humane way. But it takes us as a community and a society to be able to do that, not just single organizations. That's also a wonderful example of transformational leadership. And one of the things that really, I think, distinguishes those organizations that are able to make these big changes is the capacity of their leaders and their culture to, to support that. Um, one of the things you talk about, which I thought was really fascinating, was about the power to create a movement. Uh, how, how as a disruptive leader do you create a, a movement in your organization that allows you to make these big bets? Well, I, I think the reason why a movement is so important is because you're asking people to take on an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, this is highly disruptive. Our relationships are going to be torn apart. The way we think about the world is going to be thrown upside down. And we need a clear North Star objective, mission, whatever you want to call it. And you want to call people to that cause, whatever that reason is. And ideally, it's focused again on this customer and this need that we're trying to do. It's not as sustainable. People won't be as resilient if it's just about market share and profits. Right? You're not going to go out there and, and battle and fight and work really hard for that. But you will work hard because this is a customer need that you really believe in fulfilling. And, so, and so, so it's very connected to purpose. Absolutely. Again, I think that um, there's a renewed sense of purpose, a focus on purpose these days, because we're realizing, like, why are we doing this? Why are we going out and um, risking our health and our families and our well-being? to work when we could just stay at home, right? Um, how, how do we ask people to do these? Uh, how do we put ourselves at risk and our companies and our employees, our colleagues at risk to do these things? And there has to be a sense of purpose. And that has always driven us. It, it drives, drives us as organizations, as leaders, but it also drives us as individuals inside an organization. And if it's not there, it's a very different kind of environment. You're just kind of plodding along. You're doing this. You're just banging on the table to get the paycheck. Huh. And there's 
better way to to create uh, that change and integrate a workforce and, and a team if, if you focus again on that purpose. Does this ability to create that sense of purpose and, and momentum around a movement, it, it, does this apply to all levels of the organization or it's very much the CEO and their top reports who are responsible for leading the charge? I'm a big believer in that if you have a sense of purpose, it needs to be felt by every single person. Hmm. One of the things I do when I go into a consulting um, engagement, advisory engagement, is I ask permission, I come in about an hour early, I ask for permission to walk around the entire organization as much as I can and talk to people just randomly and I ask them three questions. The first one is, what's your strategy? The second one is, who is your customer? They know that, like, who's your future customer then? And then show me your dashboard because I want to see that customer represented and how you uh, measure uh, that, that, so, the, the dashboard must be a fascinating one. Uh, do, what, what do most people tend to look at? I'm, I'm sure it probably has nothing to do with their actual customers. No, almost never. <laughs> it, and, and it has nothing to do with their strategy. It has, and it's completely production. It's like little, especially in the digital workspace, it's like how many people are commenting. Like what does commenting tell right. you? It's like vanity right? metrics, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a vanity metrics. And, um, and, and they don't really tell you anything of value. So after an hour, I come back and like, I learned a lot. <laughs> Let me yeah. tell you what I learned. But, but this is the paradox of data-driven organizations is what data and how do you use it? I mean, I, I come across some of these examples of organizations where people will just use data to argue about whether they're right or not. You know, it doesn't become a way of challenging orthodoxies. Hey, but the reason why if you allow that to happen is because you're not clear on what the strategy is and who you're trying to do this for. I mean, this is the charge of, of leaders, and we forget this, that we are there to create change, and a very specific change is to set a very clear objective. This is what we're going for. This right here is what we're aiming for. Everybody agreed? Everybody on the same page? All right, let's go. Hmm. And then when people are off that row, you're like, wait a minute, what are you over there? What are you, what are you doing? That's not our objective. It's over here. That's your job as a leader, set the objective, give everyone the resources and make sure everyone's marching in the same direction. And we don't do that enough. We don't say to people, this is what we're aiming for. Let's create a movement. And when you create a movement, you create all these other people who become leaders themselves. So it's no longer just about you saying, hey, everybody march in this direction. Everybody else is saying, we're marching in this direction. We're all going for the same thing. And this becomes particularly important now, isn't it? Because as we start to move beyond survival and, and just keeping open, strategy needs to be refreshed in, 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 in the context of the new environment we're in. Did you feel that, that enough of those conversations are taking place now? I, you see a huge dichotomy. You see people who are just exhausted by this, all mm. the change. And they're just like, I have change fatigue, I have disruption fatigue. Can we just take the month of August off and just kind of review ourselves? It's happening right now. And we'll come back in September refreshed. But it, and I totally get that. We all need that break. But I find with disruptors, what they're, what's energizing them, the reason why they are thriving with disruption rather than just surviving with disruption is that they see this cause. They see this strong sense of purpose. They have built the mechanics of creating a movement in their organizations. So that when one person is flagging, the rest of the team is there to pick them up. Remember, this is why we're on this march. We can get there. Rest up. We'll carry the burden for you for a while until you can get your strength back. But we are doing this together. We're not going to stop. 
You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.